But shelter is only one model. Um, safe haven is a different way of thinking about coming inside. And so here we have hundreds of thousands of dollars being invested into a shelter model that's supposed to be transitional housing that's high barrier and prison-like. And so the city has money, but when is it ever going to start investing it into safe haven model or harm reduction model? I'm Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. spent the last two weeks burrowed deep under the covers hibernating, or worst case scenario, trying to thaw your frozen pipes. But for one group of St. Louisans, the past two weeks have been some of their busiest in a long time. These advocates and service providers have been working day and night to keep the city's homeless residents out of the cold, and they've worked with the intensity that comes in knowing that lives hang in the balance. They called this two-week blitz Operation Winter Haven, and through their efforts, they estimate that 260 people have been spared from that deadly cold. And joining us today to talk about what went down and why it was necessary in the first place is Tim Huffman. He's an associate professor of communication at St. Louis University and has been very involved with the Operation Winter Haven effort. So, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. And we're also joined today by Alex Cohen. He's an organizer with Tent Mission STL. Alex, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. So, Alex, you've been so involved with working with the city's homeless residents during this pandemic. When did you realize this upcoming weather forecast is going to be a huge problem? I think we've been we were pretty lucky so far this winter because Tent Mission is also plugged into the St. Louis winter outreach effort that's been around for 10 years. And once we saw this consistent amount of cold, we may be activated for four times before this cold snap Mm -hmm. coming in in the days, like coming day after day, the single digit and even negative digit temperatures, we knew it was time to um, get organized to really protect all the people that haven't benefited from any of the new shelters that the city has opened throughout this pandemic. And and did you have a sense at that point of just how many people there were in, in that group of people, people who were going to be outside in this because of how things are right now in the city? I think we had an idea anecdotally, but we never saw what it would look like in real life if we decided that, like, now is the time we prioritize the most vulnerable, the places that, you know, the city hasn't accounted for or the city has created barriers that have kept them out. And then once we created it, you know, once day two came and day three came, the conversation immediately switched to we need to create more capacity to, you know, build solidarity with this this community. Because you realized there was even more than maybe you would have predicted? Yeah, our original predictions were off (laughs) in terms of what we needed. And so as the days went on, the capacity had to keep growing. So, Tim, Alex mentioned some barriers there. There are shelters in the city, but this population that you were dealing with when it came to Operation Winter Haven, these were people not being served by those shelters. What kind of barriers are we talking about here? Yeah, I, I think it's important to, to see it both ends to this. One, there are people who will go into shelters, but many of the shelters are only overnight shelters, and so they don't operate during the day. So part of our strategy was to help support those organizations to convert to 24-hour capacity, which meant finding money to pay for more utilities, finding more volunteers, more staff members, and all of that. So, so part of this story is the conversion of 
overnight shelters to 24-hour shelters. But as Alex says, there are barriers um, around shelters, um, and those barriers might seem reasonable at first. So a shelter might have quiet hours. You know, if you can't stay quiet after 8, you know, you can't stay here. But if someone has an untreated severe mental illness that prevents them from being quiet, they're going to get kicked out of that shelter and then be put on a ban list. And that person shouldn't freeze to death just because we can't get them adequate health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and hospitals aren't equipped to just take every single person who's homeless who has a medical need um, instantaneously, although maybe that's a future we could build toward. Um, we needed a place where um, people could come without any stipulation um, and be inside at any at any moment in time. So, Tim, tell me how you went about doing that. Um, as you mentioned, you did convert these existing shelters to 24 hours, so that helps the population being served by those during the day. Yep. But But yep. what do you do about those people who are maybe on that banned list? Yeah, so if there's one word anyone takes away from the conversation we're having today, I would choose the word, well, it's two words, I guess, safe haven. So lots of people imagine shelter is the only solution to homelessness, and it's, it's not really even a solution to homelessness because it's not a home. Um, but lots of people think, oh, well, we need to create shelters. There are people on the streets. We need more shelters. But shelter is only one model. Um, safe haven is a different way of thinking about coming inside. Uh, instead of, like, coming in and getting a bed number, a safe haven is just a place that you can go, and you don't have to leave if you don't want to. And you can walk in whenever you want, and you can walk out whenever you want. Um, and that model creates a lower barrier. Um, it is more service-intensive. It requires more work, you know, because there's more movement, and also people have higher needs. Um, but really what it boils down to is trying to then, once you've got that space that people can feel like they can enter and leave, um, then you can bring in service providers, mental health uh, practitioners, doctors. Uh, we had folks coming in to treat tro- frostbite right there in the safe haven instead of going through the trouble of trying to get them to the hospital and, um, you know, and they're referred back and forth between organizations and maybe fallen through the cracks. So really it's, um, you know, it, it's creating low, low barrier um, programs uh, that have the fewest number of rules possible um, and are accessible to the most number of people. So for this sort of safe haven shelter, I'm told the city that hasn't had one of these since the New Life Evangelistic uh, Center closed. That was all the way back in April of, of 2017. How, has, how have you dealt with that in the last couple of winters, uh, Alex? Uh, have, have there been other alternatives pre-pandemic? Um, no, and I was going to, we have the Winter Outreach Network, which is an incredible network of, of volunteer shelters that, you know, opens every time the temperature drops below a specific threshold. And so that has been, you know, saving lives for over 10 years. But in terms of like a consistent safe haven, we haven't had that. And since Larry Rice's closes, my crew, Temp Mission, and a lot of the people involved have been screaming that we need a zero barrier 24-7 shelter since they closed it. And that's what the city said, that they would open a comparable one in terms of closing um, NLEC. And what we got was Biddlehouse, which has never been accessible to people and never served as an emergency um, shelter. So Alex says he's been screaming about the need for a zero barrier shelter, and not just Alex, but the, uh, the people working with Alex at Tent Mission STL as well. Tim, why has the city been unwilling to do that? That's a really good question, and I wish I had a comprehensive answer. Um, I, what I'll say for my own part, there was a group of us when the pandemic hit in about May, where we went, oh no, what is going to happen in the wintertime? Because when March happened, 
everyone, every sector had to reimagine how it worked. Tent Mission SDL was born, um, and there were so many changes that had to exist. There were shelters that had, you know, people sleeping in bunk beds. That's like not a great formula in the middle of a respiratory pandemic, mm-hmm. right? So we reinvented everything in March and April and going into the summer. But during that period of time, a group of us realized we're not going to be able to expand our winter capacity the way that we used to. We have huge church-based volunteers, many of whom are older. They're not going to have as, you know, the same use of their facilities. We're not going to have as many volunteers. And we won't be able to just pack people in like inhumane sardines into the existing shelters because of COVID restrictions. And so um, we saw private funding first um, for a comprehensive model that was housing and outreach and safe haven, um, and we didn't get it. Um, so we turned to an application to the city um, and saw um, money through a second round of coronavirus funding. Um, and uh, they were initially interested um, and kind of came back and forth and quibbled over, you know, the budget. Um, and our budget was higher than what they had been what they had chosen to allocate from their federal funds, um, it would have required them to spend a couple hundred thousand dollars of the city's own money in order to operate, mm-hmm. uh, which is maybe 20% of what more than what they had from the federal funds. But ultimately, they chose to fund a straight shelter, underfund a straight shelter that wasn't a uh, safe haven. Um, and then we finally found private money, um, and uh, we're going to open the safe haven literally in the spot that we opened the safe haven um, during this cold snap. And the city said no. Um, they did not allow the permit and did not allow the organizations who were involved, even though we had the money worked out. Um, you had private funding. Private um, funding. And the city turned this down. Did they give a reason? Uh, it's anecdotal. Something about increased foot traffic in the area. But they and didn't wh- tell it to me. This yeah, area so. we're talking about, this is downtown St. Louis? Yeah, yeah, St. Patrick's Center. You know, an organization who's designed to serve people in need. So anecdotally, you've heard they just didn't want increased foot traffic in this area. They turned down this private funding. At that point, how did, I mean, as you said, all of this is expensive. How did you guys come up with the funding for this two-week blitz? I mean, just the people in the community. Um, so just small donors? I mean, yeah, it was all the way across the board. So it, Institutions showed up, you know, uh, nonprofit organizations across the city just allocated staff, um, you know, asked people to work more. Um, we got a lot of $600 donations. We think people were giving us their, um, their stimulus money. Hmm. Um, but other, uh, yeah, small, like $10, $5 donations, um, some institutions um, not connected to homelessness also donated money. Uh, so it was just a, yeah, community effort all the way across the board. So Alex, your group, Tent Mission STL, you guys were really aggressive on social media saying, here's our Venmo, uh, just transfer us some money, here's an Amazon wish list. Um, did that end up yielding big results? Yeah, it did end big uh, big results. And one of my favorite parts about Tent Mission is we, like, we kind of say we do the things that um, other groups won't do and go to the places other groups won't go. And so because we're not like your traditional nonprofit or institution, we aren't restricted by, I think, the bounds that like mutual aid and direct solidarity with people on the streets can create. And so like if someone needs, you know, someone on the streets needs something that is like help to get a, um, a down payment to move into their apartment, that is something we can decide is like a collective to pay and really kind of transition people in that direct way. Um, so, yeah, this this crisis has turned out to be where we're building power 
And one thing I just wanted to add to the previous comment, if I could. Sure. Is, is the city, um, for, like the city, I don't want to misquote Timothy, is it $600,000 that the city spent on the tiny sheds called Jefferson Spaces? Uh, I saw, I read that in the, the news, but I think it was more than that. Um, I think that that project was at least twice that amount. This is a project for some transitional housing, uh, tiny houses there on Jefferson, Alex. Yeah. Yeah. And so hundreds of thousands of dollars they spent on that. And it's a good model. But again, what is making it now a bad model is that it is a high barrier to get into. And just last night, I'm hearing peer support workers who, um, you know, people who have direct experiences with homelessness or drug use and work with the community. Um, they're already saying that they're starting to hear people say it sounds like a prison. There's a 9 p.m. curfew. People are getting kicked out for nothing. And so here we have hundreds of thousands of dollars being invested into a shelter model that's supposed to be transitional housing that's high barrier and prison-like. And so the city has money, but when is it ever going to start investing it into safe haven model or harm reduction model? Because we're never going to get out of this. They have the money, but their priorities are still stuck in an old way of trying to address homelessness. Tim, I'm I'm kind of wishing I had someone from the city at the table to speak to this, but um, since I don't, I want to sort of put this back to you. It seems like the city has made a concerted effort in the last couple years that they want to get people off the streets and into these transitional programs so they can eventually get into permanent housing, which it does seem like a really worthy goal. I guess where you guys are coming from is you're saying there's a real catch to that. Where do you see the catch? I mean, so without getting too nerdy, it's part of about a decade or even longer transition from in federal priorities. We used to fund emergency solutions at the federal level, and we have started to realize that they have really bad outcomes. It's very hard to just give someone a cot and a toothbrush and and maybe like access to a training program and then have them end their homelessness. That's Mm -hmm. rough. It's really hard. And so the federal funds have started to prioritize housing. Not, and not just transitional housing, in some cases permanent housing for people who are, you know, severely disabled and, you know, are just going to need a really long time uh, to stabilize their life. And I think those things are good. But what it has done is it has shifted the responsibility for emergency solutions to local governments. Hmm. And St. Louis has just not shown up for it. It does not spend the amount of money that it needs of its own capital um, to address the needs of these residents. Less than 2% of the city's budget go to um, human services. And, mm. you know, I've, I've, seen, I've seen the city brag on social media about how it spends so much more money than St. Louis County does, but it gets a huge amount of money allocated to it by the federal government. So it's like being, bragging about being a large pass-through organization. So when we're looking at this uh, this this difficult two week stretch here, and you're talking about having to go out and raise this money from small donors and six hundred dollars at a time, I mean, how much are we talking? Do we have any sense of what the costs have been just in that two week period alone that that individuals have had to pick up? Tim, do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I mean, it, most of it's invisible because so much of what has been solved has been someone driving in Costco and spending $500 and driving over to the safe haven or the shelter and giving them the supplies that they need. Mm -hmm. So, no, it's impossible. Running a good quality 24-hour, year-long safe haven is expensive. It's about a million bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, But, uh, 
you know, we spend a lot of money on solving other problems in this community. Um, and yeah, uh, it's, uh, it, it sounds it, like this important. is a, this is a source yeah, of frustration a, to both of you. Yeah. Yeah. It's a neat, I mean, we, we underfund, we've, our, our, trust me, we're underfunded across all aspects of the system, housing, transitional housing, shelter, outreach. But to me, the largest needs, um, you know, are increasing our capacity for permanent housing and low barrier safety. Mm-hmm. So I want to, sorry, I want to bring it back to the work that has been done and where things stand right now. We hear that it is about to get warmer. It's not quite there yet. Um, Alex, you'd mentioned that the safe haven shelter, it had been on the first floor of St. Patrick's Center until yesterday, and that's now changed. Is everything okay for it, for at least these next couple of days? Yes, yeah, so it was just relocated because the the duration of the cold snap extended longer than originally thought. So there's a an, another safe haven that's currently open. There's also um, so people who transitioned out have the option to go to a hotel, to a safe haven, or to a shelter. And so everyone is still transitioned into um, emergency shelter. Okay, so everybody who needs coverage has it. Do you expect that con- to, to continue as we get to, say, Sunday? It's not necessarily going to be 20 degrees at that point. Are these people then just back to the streets? Yeah, unfortunately, the uh, you know, we've been trying to work with people to transition people into other things. Right now, you know, there's some tiny homes left available, but when those emergency thresholds kind of switch over, then so does this emergency network closes down. And so, again, that is the need for, you know, the city to respond to the safe haven proposal that's 24-7 year-round sitting at their table. Um, Because, you know, these things only kick in when emergency happens and we need a sustainable thing. And I would just say um, that the solution really is harm reduction. The solution really is safe haven. It's understanding the unhoused community isn't a monolith. And so you can't, like, insert a program that has a one-size-fits-all model, you have to insert a program that says we're going to take everyone just as they are and start from there, meet them exactly where they're at, and work through everything. And that's what the safe haven does. That's what harm reduction does. And that's our only way out of this. And for the immediate needs right now that people are dealing with, if people are listening to this and maybe they haven't yet uh, sent money to the Venmo for, for Tent Mission STL, they don't donate to these organizations in the city's uh, continuum of care. Alex, what would you say is the top need right now and, and how can we get money to it? I would say if you go to it's bit.ly backslash STL Winterhaven, you can see a variety of links. Um, linking you to all the shelters and spaces that stepped up and also how to donate to that network. Okay. So that's bit.ly slash STL Winterhaven. We want to encourage people to check that out and and do their part here. Tim, bigger picture, we've been talking a lot about how this overall system just has so many gaps in it. That's a huge problem. But when you look back at this last two weeks, do you also have some sense of like, man, we, we really saved some lives by pulling together in this way? I mean, of course, of course, um, their lives were saved, um, amputations were prevented, um, and not everybody is going to get discharged from, you know, to the, to the you know, an unhoused situation. Some people connected with case managers or began programs or got through referral processes to get into, you know, the tiny homes or whatever, you know, so, uh, 
keep, keeping folks alive, you know, was the kind of o- overarching uh, goal, um, and that's something that definitely happened. But I'm, in some ways, I've never been more optimistic um, mm-hmm. because I don't. In, in the time I've lived in St. Louis, I've never seen everyone get in during the day. It's just a, a monumental accomplishment, and I've also never seen so many people from so many different sectors working so collaboratively. Um, north and south, church, nonprofit, uh, governmental, um, so many different, you know, kind of program models and um, people showing up to do the work. And um, I'm really, I've met some amazing people over the last two weeks also. It's funny, I've seen more people in the last two weeks than I have seen since March. <laughs> and, uh, and all for a very good cause. I mean, man, that if there's any reason to leave your uh, pandemic isolation, this sounds like this was it. But that's yeah. just, that's a remarkable testament right there. Alex, are you feeling that same sense of just, wow, you know, this, everybody came together? I am feeling that and the urgency to figure out how we keep coming together because as the cold snap ends, people are wondering what comes next for them that are in these shelters. And so these moments where everyone comes together and then how can we make it sustainable because now is the crucial point. You know, hopefully no one ever has to transition back to the streets, but, you know, so yeah, how do we keep going? Well, we intend to stay on this story, and I have a feeling we're going to have you guys back to talk as, as this continues. So, Alex Cohen of Tent Mission STL, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And Tim Huffman of St. Louis University, thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. from today's episode, consider leaving us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the easiest way to help people discover our show. We appreciate it. Thank you. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.